Would you take out your Bible, please, and turn to 2 Kings chapter 16. 2 Kings chapter 16, and we'll read verses 8 and uh, 9 here in just uh, a second. Uh, 7, 8, and 9 here in just a moment. That's 2 Kings chapter 16 and verse 7. So we've made uh, a commitment in our daily Bible reading program. The bookmarks are there in the back, of course. Uh, we've made a commitment to keep those readings manageable. They're five days a week, uh, and we're keeping those readings under about 30 verses or so, sometimes quite a bit under that, where it's uh, easy to catch up, it's not discouraging, but we're still getting the, the general overview of what the Bible teaches. Unfortunately, in coming up with those readings, sometimes you have to make some really difficult choices in order to keep that commitment. Um, and you would like to just put everything in there, but sometimes you have to cut out some really, really good stuff. And, and in our daily Bible reading from this past week, we cut out 2 Kings chapter 16. And, and yet, this is one of the most powerful passages in the whole book of 2 Kings, in my judgment. So, this evening, we're going to go back and talk about 2 Kings chapter 16, because it's just too good not to talk about. Uh, just to reacquaint you, and especially if you were not, are not in our Sunday morning Bible class, we see this timeline of the kings of Israel and Judah. Uh, and 2 Kings chapter 16 comes from this time during the reign of Ahaz, just before the northern kingdom of Israel goes into captivity. Pekah is the king of Israel, Ahaz is the king of Judah in this time. And the events of chapter 16 focus specifically on this king Ahaz. He's in distress because the kingdoms of Israel and Syria to the north have joined forces to come against him and destroy his kingdom. So what does this king, this king of Judah, a descendant from the great king David, what does he do to respond to this threat to his kingship and his kingdom? Well, that's what we find in 2 Kings chapter 16, beginning in verse 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria... Now, the Assyrian kingdom is building in power and influence at this time. So he sends messengers to Tiglath-Pileser. I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. So Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus, that's the capital of Syria, and took it and carried its people captive to Ker and killed Rezin, who was the king of Syria at this time. I want you to focus specifically on what he says with this address to the king of Assyria. He says, I am your servant and son, save me. Now, the kings and nations around Judah did this sort of thing all of the time. If you were in a battle against uh, another kingdom, you're going to try and recruit other people to your side in the battle. And in that recruitment, you want to find the most powerful kingdom around to join your side to ensure your victory. So you've got Israel uh, and you've got Syria 
two kingdoms who at this time were both stronger in many ways than the kingdom of Judah. And so it kind of makes sense from a physical perspective that King Ahaz would send messengers to Assyria, to the north of Syria, and he would say, this greater kingdom than either one of these that are coming to fight me, I'm going to appeal to them so that they might come and help me in this war. The only problem is God didn't want his people to do that. He specifically condemned these sort of military alliances with foreign kingdoms. And I want to suggest this evening that these terms that he uses, I am your servant, I am your son, save me, those three terms, is more than just asking for a little help. They held special significance for the king of Judah because it was a rejection of God in favor of man. I am your servant. I am your son. Save me. That is exactly how the king of Judah is described in regard to his relationship with Yahweh, in regard to his relationship with the one true God. And that's especially true if you remember this is the family of David and David's relationship with God. Turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you would. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is when God establishes his covenant with David and more specifically with David's house, with the descendants of David, with the kings who would come from David. And in 2 Kings chapter 7 and verse 5, this is what God says to Nathan the prophet, 2 Kings 7, 5. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? Uh, that's what David proposed. I want to build a temple. I, I've got this big, beautiful palace, and here God is dwelling in a tent, the tabernacle. Will God allow me to build a permanent structure, a temple for him? And Nathan says, that sounds like a great idea. But then God speaks to Nathan and says, no, I don't want David to build me a house. I want to build him a house. I want to build him a legacy. I want these kings to come from him and reign in his kingdom. And so we think about all of the kings of Judah who were descendants of David. Those who were truly successful walked in the ways and fulfilled the covenant that God made with David. But drop down to verse 14 of the same chapter. In describing Solomon, David's son, the kings who would come after Solomon who were faithful like Hezekiah and Josiah and others, and then ultimately Jesus, this is what God says to David in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Ultimately, those promises found their fulfillment in Jesus. But they also found a limited fulfillment here in the kingdom of Judah, that all of these kings came from the lineage of or house of David. I will be his father. He will be my son, he says. But that's not all. This particular phrase that, that, king, that the king uses in 2 Kings 16, save me or deliver me, is one of the most common phrases that we see David using in the Psalms to address God. 
dozens of times he uses this phrase, this same Hebrew phrase that is translated save me in 2 Kings chapter 16. Let me give you just a few examples. Turn to the book of Psalms. Let's look first at the 6th Psalm. Psalm 6 and verse 4. Psalm 6, 4. Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. Go to the next psalm, Psalm 7, verses 1 and 2. O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me lest they tear me like a lion, rending me to pieces while there is none to deliver. Uh, One more example. Go to chapter 12 and verse 1. Psalm 12, verse 1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. That phrase translated help is the idea of save, deliver. I need help from God. And on and on and on we could go through the Psalms looking at many of the Psalms of David where he uses this same phrase. God is the master of the king of Judah. God was supposed to be the father of the king of Judah. And it should be to God that the king cries out for help in time of need. But King Ahaz takes these three terms and he voluntarily uses them in his plea to the king of Assyria. He describes his desired connection and relationship with this wicked pagan king in ways that should have been reserved only to describe his relationship with God. And then he calls on this king to come and do what only God could do in truly delivering his kingdom. And then as proof of his commitment to show how dearly he wants this relationship with the king of Assyria, what does he do? He goes into his own house, yes, but he also goes into the house of the Lord. He goes into the temple of the Lord. He robs that temple of its silver and gold, and he sends that as a present to the king of Assyria. Well, he's proven. He's proven his loyalty. He's proven to whom it is he is really appealing for help, and it is not God. Now, we see the folly of that. We see through all of that, right? Maybe your eyes are glazing over a little bit even just thinking about that. Well, yeah, that's super dumb. We've seen a bunch of that in our studies in the Bible class on Sunday morning. But do we make the same mistake? No, our our plea is not to some physical king. But in our moments of distress or weakness or uncertainty or doubt or pain, do we cry out to God to save us? Or do we cry out to the world? Do we make our commitments to him in faith or do we make our commitments to the world through our actions? And so this evening I want to ask you three questions based on what Ahaz says here. And all of us have to examine the answers to see if we will thrive in a relationship with God because he is our master and our father and our savior. Or will we like Judah fall into a relationship with the world that ultimately disappoints in delivering anything that it promises. The first question, who is your master? We all have a master. But the thing is, uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that throughout the ancient world and throughout really the history of mankind, 
Most slaves had no choice whatsoever in who their master was, right? You were born into that relationship, or maybe you were sold into that relationship, or maybe uh, it was some sort of servitude, indentured servitude, where you owed a debt to somebody, and so you were forced by law to go into that relationship. There are some exceptions. There are some exceptions in the, the law to make that choice. But when we think about a king, A king has a choice about who it is he wants to ultimately make an alliance with, or, in the case of Ahaz, who he wants to make his master. And God, for us today in the 21st century, when it comes to our spiritual relationships, we too have a choice in who it is we're going to choose to be our master. Who will we choose? Turn to Romans chapter 6, if you would. Romans chapter 6. I think about this passage a lot. In Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, and the choice we make in the things that are going to master us, the choice we make in what we're going to become a slave to. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? That God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was to which you were delivered. Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now you've got a choice. Present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. That's our choice. To whom are we going to present ourselves as slaves to obey? Well, that tells us who our master is. Our master that we choose is the one we choose to obey. And Jesus said very clearly that we cannot choose to serve two masters. We have to make a choice between one or the other. In the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us you cannot serve God and mammon. You've got to make a choice between God and the things of the world. And the world, the world wants to be our master. There's no doubt about that. You just have to look at all of the commands that the world gives us about who we're supposed to be and what it is we're supposed to do. The world tells us all sorts of things about what we should believe. Do we obey the world, our culture, or do we obey God? The world tells us who we should be and who we should be with. The world tells us whether we have value whether we're attractive to others. The world tells us whether we're wise or smart. The world tells us how we should dress, how we need to look, how we should act. The world tells us how we can be fulfilled or happy or joyous or content as we studied this morning and we'll study again next Sunday night. And the world tells us what's really important in life, what life is all about. Do we obey the world's commands and submit ourselves to what the world says we should be in all of those things? Uh, We think about trends in the world. I I think it's so funny what counterculture is. If counterculture is counterculture long enough, eventually it just becomes what? becomes culture, right? I'm rebelling just like everybody else. Uh, I'm rebelling, and yet, amazingly, my rebellion is exactly the same as everybody else. We all want to think that we're our own masters. I'm making my own decisions. But we're all choosing to be slaves to somebody. 
The only question is, who's slave? Who is our master? And, and there's a number of places besides the Sermon on the Mount where we could illustrate that. For example, in James chapter 4, if you want to turn over there for just a moment, James chapter 4. James, probably the Lord's brother, possibly the apostle uh, James, but, but more likely the Lord's brother, who was an, uh, an elder in the church and inspired by the Holy Spirit. In James chapter 4 and verse 4, he says this, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, those who say, I'm my own master, but he gives grace to the humble, those who choose to submit to God. This passage says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. We make God our enemy when we choose to be friends with the world. This is an absolute. There is no exception. And God has always wanted our undivided attention, love, affection, and yes, obedience. So who is your master? The second question. Who is your father? Ahaz said to Tiglath-Pileser, I am your son. Uh, going back to the text there in 2 Kings chapter 16. Turn back there with me if you would. 2 Kings chapter 16. Ahaz is saying he's the king of, uh, he's the son of the king of Assyria. So that the king of Assyria will come and help him. I mean a father generally is going to come and help his son. And he tries to prove this relationship, prove this sonship by doing his best to look just like the king of Assyria, to turn his kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, into an imitation of Assyria. And so if you're there in 2 Kings chapter 16, let's pick up the reading uh, in verse 10. After the king of Assyria comes and destroys Syria, those are two different kingdoms, right? What happens next? Verse 10. Now, King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. And he saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah, the priest, to design the altar and its pattern according to all of its workmanship. Now, if you're somebody who underlines in your Bible, there's a word in verse 10 that would be great to underline. That's that word pattern. That's a word that shows up a number of times in the instructions that Moses gives as he receives them from God to the children of Israel in building the tabernacle and following the law. There's a pattern that is supposed to be followed. And so what does King Ahaz do? He says, follow this pattern instead of God's pattern in regard to the holy things. So, verse 11... Then Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. And when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar. And the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. Well, obviously, under the old law, the king is not supposed to make these kinds of offerings. But in Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser was able to do it. And so why not him as well? So he made offerings. But it's interesting the offerings that he makes. Verse 13. So he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and he poured his drink offering 
and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. We've got some weird Frankenstein's monster combination between the old law, the law of Moses, and the offerings that were contained in it, and this new updated altar. So he's worshiping Yahweh in this new updated way that's not according to the original pattern. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 14, he also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, on the great new altar... Boy, that's the way it always is with new stuff, isn't it? The old thing was just, it's, it's, it's out of date. It's not any good. This one is great. The great new altar. Burn the morning burnt offering, the evening grain offering, the king's burnt sacrifice and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering and their drink offerings, and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice, and the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Thus did Uriah the priest, according to all that King Ahaz commanded him. And King Ahaz cut off the panels of the carts and removed the lavers from them, and he took down the sea from the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a pavement of stones. Everything's getting a facelift. And so he removed the Sabbath pavilion which they had built in the temple, and he removed the king's outer entrance from the house of the Lord. Why? Into verse 18. On account of the king of Assyria. He's turning the worship of the one true God into an imitation of the kind of worship that they had in Assyria. Uh, this is fence sitting at its best, isn't it? We're going to keep worshiping Yahweh, but I want this king of Assyria to know we're doing things just like him. We're worshiping our God, but we're going to do it in the way that everybody else around us is worshiping their God. So friendship with the world like this, when we make the world into our father, it always leads to an imitation of the world. And there's certainly application to be made to worship in this text, isn't there? Do we strive to lay aside the pattern of worship we have from God to imitate the worship of those around us? We're still worshiping God, but we're going to do it the way everybody else worships Him, whether that's worship as entertainment, whether that's worship that focuses on self instead of God, whether that's worship that becomes primarily about how I feel instead of how God feels about me, whether that's worship that goes beyond the pattern of what we see in the New Testament for how the first century church worshipped. We can't be fence-sitters like that. Either we're going to go the way of the world or we're going to continue to follow the pattern of God. But I want us to think more broadly beyond just worship. A son... Uh, who loves his father and wants his father to be there for him and save him, a son like that looks and acts like his father. <clears throat> so maybe we can see who our father is by how we act. Who is your father, God or someone else? Uh, turn to John chapter 8. One last passage on this point. John chapter 8. In John 8, Jesus is having a a really spirited back and forth with the religious leaders of his day. In 
In verse 32, he said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they're really offended by that. They say, we've never been slaves to anyone. This passage is one of, you know, two dozen we could point to to say, no, you kind of were lots of times. But it's interesting, they claim in verse 39, they say to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And what's Jesus' response to them? If you were Abraham's children, now you are by blood, but that's not Jesus' point. If you were really Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Now, he doesn't tell him who that father is yet, uh, but he does if you drop down to verse 44. You are of your father the devil, <laughs> and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own resources for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, why were they of their father the devil? Why was the devil their father? Verse 45, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Because they rejected the truth. That's not what Abraham did. And that's not what God the Father does. But that is what the devil does. The way we act shows who our father is. That imitation is showing our father. Imitation is reflection. I'm a mirror of the one that I imitate. Um, that's why we're told to reflect the light of Christ into the lives of others. And how do we do that? By looking and acting and talking and thinking like Christ. And every time we hear a description of a characteristic of God, we should look at our own lives and say, does that describe me? Do I look like my father? So we could make a lot of applications here. Let me make just one. What does your, not what, who, who does your speech reflect? And there's lots of applications we could make to, to speech. Um, there is no place in the mouth of a Christian to say, oh my God, except in the context of addressing our Father in heaven. Um, something that, that stuck with me, um, has stuck with me through the years, Ezekiel 36, God says, I had concern for my holy name. God doesn't even take his own name in vain. Uh, there were a bunch of people who came over to play volleyball uh, a few weeks ago uh, at the end of October, and we had a, a bunch of high school kids there and a few adults there, and I realized uh, after we've been playing for a little while, I'm out there playing with them. The other adults are just sitting over there on the sideline. I don't know what the deal is, but I'm playing with the, the high schoolers and a few junior hires, and uh, some people, they're, they're making fun of me uh, because uh, whenever I'd, I'd miss a shot, I'd hear somebody say, Reagan, Allen, Reagan, Allen. Because when I miss a shot, you know what I say? Reagan Allen. That's taking my own name in vain, right? Uh, and I'm allowed to do that. It's my name. Our God in heaven above doesn't even take his own name in vain. What in the world would give us the right to take his name in vain? If it wouldn't pass the lips of our Savior, it shouldn't pass our lips either. And of course, that's not all the applications we could make to our speech do I slip up and use the occasional profanity like Peter just to prove a point? You know, this is a really big deal and I'm going to use profanity to prove it. 
What about the content of our speech? Is, is our speech something that builds other people up or tears them down? Does my speech perpetuate gossip or does gossip stop with me because I don't want to hear it, much less repeat it? Do I speak the truth in love or do I speak the truth in bitterness with a desire to, to rub it in the face, the failures of others? If Jesus heard my speech, and of course he does, would he approve and say, my son or my daughter speaks like me. Who is your father? It's reflected in the way that we live. And then finally, in whom do you trust? Ahaz said, you are my master. I'm your servant. You are my father. I am your son. And then he shows his trust in him by saying, come and save me. The reality is that the world is unreliable. And yet, like Ahaz, sometimes we're tempted to rob from God in the hopes that the world will save us. We take from our time and our energy and our abilities and our influence that should go to God and give it to the world in hopes that we can find peace and comfort and fulfillment and purpose. And if we read through the text there in 2 Kings, at first it seems like it works, doesn't it? I mean, Ahaz sends all of these presents. He says, uh, you're my, uh, I'm your servant and your son, save me. And what does Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, do? He comes and saves him, right? He defeats Syria, Israel retreats, and now the king of Judah is safe and secure, and everything is great. But don't count on the world to always be there in your moment of need. I want you to turn to 2 Chronicles 28. 2 Chronicles 28. This is uh, another account of the kings of Judah. Chronicles and kings run parallel. And they're written for different purposes. They're written at different times in history, but about the same events. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, we find something that I think is just absolutely fascinating. 2 Chronicles chapter 28 Notice in verse 16, 2 Chronicles 6, uh, 28, verse 16. At the same time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria to help him. And we say, okay, we know this story, we just read it. For again, the Edomites had come, attacked Judah, and carried away captives. The Philistines also had invaded the cities of the lowland and of the south of Judah, and had taken these cities, Beth Shemesh, Ajalon, Gedaroth, Sakoth and its villages, Timnah and its villages, Gimzo and its villages, and they dwelt there. For the Lord had brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. Also, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came to him and distressed him and did not assist him. For Ahaz took part of the treasures from the house of the Lord, from the house of the king, and from the leaders... And he gave it to the king of Assyria, but he did not help him. Now, to reconcile these two passages, and we say, well, why are they so different? Um, those who don't read it carefully say, ah, here's a contradiction between these two accounts of what happened during this time. But if we read carefully, we see pretty clearly that these are not uh, a contradiction. This is describing two different occasions. How do we know that? Well, the characters are different, right? It's not Syria and Judah who's coming, or Syria and Israel who's coming to attack Judah. Who is it in the text? It's the Edomites and the Philistines. So here's what happens. 
We see Syria and Israel coming to attack Judah. And Ahaz sends to Tiglath-Pileser and he says, Come help me. And that's exactly what he does. And then some time passes and we see that there are a couple of other nations, the Edomites and the Philistines, who come and attack and the king does exactly the same thing. In fact, he does a little bit more this time. He sends for help and what happens? Tiglath-Pileser says, Ha! I'll take what you send me, but I'm not coming to help. No help is given. In fact, it says that he distressed him on this occasion. Ahaz appeals again to the king or kings of Assyria for help, and this time he has to give more, not just from the temple, not just from his own house, but from the houses of the leaders as well. And Assyria just keeps the gifts without helping. He goes to what seemed to help him before, and he gives more, but he has diminished returns for what he's giving up. And the reality is that the world will always abandon us in the end because the world doesn't care about us. The world takes and takes and takes. It wants more and more for a smaller return until it uses us up and we have nothing more to give. And we have nothing to show for the things that we have given except heartache. I want you to turn to one more passage. This is the last scripture that we'll read this evening. Hebrews chapter 13. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. It was interesting, one of the the two verses that we're going to read was actually on the screen before the last song that we sang. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. We talked about that this morning. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, if you read that, we might think at the first glance, we say, how do those thoughts, how do those concepts go together. Doesn't that seem a little odd? And yet I would say that the Hebrew writer is clearly clearly has a, pro, uh, a progression here. He uses that word for, he himself, verse 5. So, in verse 6, he's intending to relate this idea of contentment and not having covetousness with the idea of God being our helper. And I think what he's trying to do is drawing a contrast between uncertain riches which will leave us and forsake us, and the God of heaven above who will not leave us or forsake us if we submit ourselves to him. Friendship with the world will fail us in our time of need, but God will not. We've all heard the phrase, maybe we've used it ourselves, where is God when I hurt? Where is God when my life is filled with pain, and sorrow, why isn't he there? Well, if you're a Christian, I'll tell you that God is there. And we could go into a lot of explanation about that and how we can see God and the things that are done. But I want to look at it from the other perspective. People ask, where is God when I hurt? But maybe sometimes the question we should ask is, where is the world when I hurt? If the world is the one that we've appealed to as our master, if the world is the one that we're imitating, then the world is the one who's supposed to come and save us in our moment of need. And yet all too often we see that that's not at all what happens. 
Where is the world and its promise of easy pleasure with no consequences to the one who's contracted an STD or the teenage girl whose life is forever changed because of an unplanned pregnancy? Where is the world and its assurance that leaving your spouse is better than fixing your marriage when you're, you're lonely and alone? Where is the world and its life of the party mentality to the one who is addicted to drugs or alcohol and it ruins all of the relationships and all of the things they have going for them in their life? Where is the world when the stock market crashes or the job is lost or the children are estranged because of the pursuit of wealth that was supposed to bring us all of the best things in life? Where is the world and its no, wor no worries mantra when a loved one passes away and there is nowhere and no one to whom we can turn for comfort. Assyria wasn't really there for Ahaz. It never was. And the world isn't there for us. It will forsake us. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But for those of us who are Christians, who have been through the storms of life with God beside us and our brethren beside us, we have a different experience in those times, don't we? I have heard so many times over the course of my life, faithful Christians ask the question, not where is God, but how do people do this without their faith? How do people get through this without a church family? How do people deal with this without the hope of heaven? And the answer to all those questions is they don't do very well. Because the world is not there to help, not really. To put the Hebrews writer's words in a different way, you can never have enough money to overcome the things God can overcome for us. Death and sin and Satan, eternal damnation. And if you're not yet a Christian, you need deliverance. You need saving from those things. And not just from those things, but you need saving into life, into holiness, into eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. And so maybe the formula that we need to follow is the one that Ahaz gives us, not to the king of Assyria, but to the king of heaven, the Lord of lords and king of kings. Can you say to God this evening, I am your servant, and obey him and his require, requirements to receive his grace, believe and repent and confess and be baptized into Christ? Can you say to God, I am your son and imitate him all the days of your life, striving to be like him in all the ways that you live? And are you willing to say to God, save me, because I cannot and will not save myself and neither will the world, but I can hope and trust in you and I know that you will save me both now and eternally. If you're not yet a Christian, that stands before you. And if you are a Christian, then God is your master and he is your father. And he can save you from whatever it is you're going through. And one of the mechanisms he's put in place for that are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we ask you to come now while together we stand and while we sing. Have you a heart that's